John, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I mean, how fun is this that we are out in the middle of the Black Rock Desert, literally in the middle of the playa after dri- having driven hundreds of miles of trails and backcountry roads just to get here. And I just thought it would be really interesting to have you on the show because you have this very storied background that I think that our readers will really enjoy. And so kind of give me, what was your first adventure? What was the first thing that sparked this desire to see the world? And not only see the world as a traveler like you have, but you've also worked around the world as an executive and as an engineer and as a product planner. I mean, this is a really interesting path you've taken. Yeah, I, so I grew up traveling. Uh, my uh, mother was English. Uh, my father was American. I was born in London, uh, immigrated to the U.S. when I was six months old. Uh, and uh, my parents both had a love for travel. And, uh, and also growing up in the U.S. and North Carolina, uh, my mother felt it was very important that I understand kind of the British part of who I was. And so there was a lot of travel, usually every two years, between the U.S., and the UK, um, my, my dad was a university professor and so he had summers off. And so we were able to do some travel, uh, some extended trips to the UK where I even went to school there and things like that. Wow. So, so I just kind of grew up with travel and going places, really just kind of being part of the DNA. I couldn't imagine doing anything else other than that. And, and I remember you mentioning how much your parents also enjoyed travel and that they wanted to instill that in you. Uh, what were some of the first trips that you did with them? Uh, so it really was a lot of travel to Europe mm. uh, and uh, uh, both to kind of England and France and Switzerland mainly. Uh, and then a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of trips up and down the U.S. East Coast uh, because uh, when my, my parents, uh, growing up with my parents, we were, we were a good family, but we were not a, an especially wealthy family. So, sure. so travel meant going to visit people and friends and people whose houses we could stay in and sure. things like that. So I grew up, you know, never, though, though we didn't want for anything, something like going out to eat or, you know, going to a restaurant or staying in a hotel would have been a completely foreign experience to me. Uh, so we grew up going to travel to to visit with people and to to make new friends and experience them and their culture and and just kind of learn about the world everywhere we went, you know, we'd go to the museums, yeah. uh, we'd go to, uh, you know, we, uh, we'd go to the historical landmarks, the national monuments, that sort of thing. So I grew up loving that, and then later on, that expanded to kind of my love of the the nature nature and the backcountry and things like that. Uh, when my parents got married. Uh, they got married in England, uh, and for their honeymoon, they did a tour around uh, Europe in an old Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, and then, when they uh, then in the U.S. a few uh, several years later, they did the same thing and traveled all around the U.S. Uh, again in a Volkswagen Beetle. And I mean, these not only sounds formative for your parents, but yeah. those experiences for you seem very formative, and it. If I remember from your story, you transitioned to going into the military. Was that the first time that you got to, as a, as a single person, as a young person, leave your parents and go travel? 
Yeah, absolutely. I um, I tried I tried going to college, uh, and it was something I just wasn't ready for. You know, I'd spent the past twelve years of my life sitting in classes, and so when it came time to actually have a choice, I decided, you know what, you know, education's important to me, but there's some other things I want to do right now. And my my father had served in the military. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, my mother's family was a British naval family, and so. Uh, military service tends to run in families, and it certainly did for me. Uh, and I viewed it as a great way to kind of unplug from, you know, from moving through the education system, do something different, but then also, you know, have the ability to come back and complete it and have it not be kind of a, a negative on my resume or anything like that. Everybody and America is great about this compared to, to some other countries. There's always this great respect for, for military and military service. And so I can say that you know no, nobody ever held it against me that I didn't go straight to college, that I went into the military as enlisted and then went uh, and pursued a college degree. That was exactly the same for me. Yeah. I was hopeless for yeah. my first, my first co- couple semesters out of high school. Yeah. I definitely recognized that I needed grow up i yeah. needed to expand my horizons i needed to find my way yeah. yeah and the military was a really great way to do that and as a traveler having been in the military where did you get to travel in the mil- military and what were some of the things that you learned because uh, if i remember you were doing a reconnaissance mm-hmm. fixed wing reconnaissance in the army uh, so that's a that's a very interesting job how did that start to translate into the next steps for you? Yeah, yeah. So, so I was uh, uh, military intelligence. So it was uh, aerial reconnaissance, uh, electronic warfare signals gathering. So, where some people take photographs or take uh, infrared pictures, I was looking for radar signals, emitters, uh, meaning that every every missile system has a radar system associated with it. And if you can figure out where that radar system is and the characteristics of it, you can say what missile system is associated there. So uh, really neat stuff, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, And uh, I got to travel a lot of places. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time in Key Key West uh, because when I was in the military, there was still a Soviet Union there, and they still rotated troops in and out of Cuba every six months. So every six months we were in in, in Key West checking out what was going on in Cuba. And, uh, you know, fortunately, one of our rotations, every, we went there for 45 days, uh, uh, you know, twice a year. One of those rotations uh, always coincided with spring break. So it was very... <laughs> it was memorable. It was yeah. great. I was, I, so I was 21 years old, and I was getting paid to go to Key West for 45 days during spring break, right? So that's where you think, you know what? Life is not that bad. <laughs> Again, formative years, right? Right, right. <laughs> and sure. had, a, had, had a great time doing that. Uh, later on, uh, I ferried our aircraft uh, all the way uh, from you know, from Savannah, Georgia, up the East Coast to Goose Bay, to Sandra Stromford, Green, uh, in uh, Greenland, Keflavik, Iceland, Prestwick, Scotland, Stuttgart, and then down into Southern Europe. Uh, into Egypt and then Western Saudi Arabia to Eastern Saudi Arabia, where we then uh, you know, brought our brought our uh, intelligence gathering systems online. Uh, uh, so incredible. that was a that was a great trip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, lots of great travels, and you know, you wish you could spend more time in each place. 
but uh, it's a it's you know yeah just great things to do. And how did you go from fixed wing reconnaissance to to being in executive and director positions and product planning and development for GE and Sony and Johnson and yeah. Johnson around the world? How did that well well transition so- happen? I was a lot more successful at my second attempt at college than my first attempt. Uh, my, uh, you know, the military teaches you that it's not a matter of either or, right? You can go out and have, you know, a, a, a personal life, party hard, right? Yeah. Uh, you can be in great shape, but you can also work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And it teaches you that you can accomplish all of these things. It's not a matter of deciding which, because you don't have a choice. You kind of got to do them all. Uh, and so... Uh, when I went back to college, I, uh, I was president of the engineering student body. I uh, did really well in my classes uh, and, and, and graduated in really good standing. And so when I graduated, and it was an electrical engineering degree, so it tied in with my electrical technician experience that I had in the military. And, uh, uh, and so I got hired on by GE, uh, General Electric, into their... Edison Engineering Program, uh, which is their technical leader development program, in a pretty, a pretty prestigious placement. It meant that they felt that you had the potential to do something, uh, and they followed. They backed that up with a lot of training and a lot of really good experiences. And so, uh, getting into that program at GE really kind of helped to send me on. Well, and GE sent me to uh, to Budapest uh, wow. to work. Uh, along with my wife. And so that was my first international assignment working in Budapest, uh, which was uh, phenomenal. And was this during the Jack Welch years? Yeah, that was the Jack Welch years. And what were what were some of the key takeaways for, for you? We, we talk about on the podcast leadership and yeah. management because it relates directly back to us as travelers. If we're traveling in a group or a yeah. team or we're traveling with a partner, uh, learning how to manage ourselves and manage risk. And what were some of the key takeaways for you during, because Jack Welch was, was quite notable um, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Some I of mean, the key learnings. I mean, he was a, 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 a real transformational leader, you know, and, um, and, and his impact was felt throughout the businesses. Uh, one was that, you know, the uh, uh, GE uh, felt that they had to renew their employees, and if you were at the bo- if you were the bottom ten percent, then you were gone every year, uh, and uh, and people kind of knew and understood that. You know, and I've t- kind of helped people with with cleaning out their desks after they worked for GE for many years, uh, and uh, who just kind of acknowledged that yeah, I, I was no longer the, the guy they needed me to be, which was really really hard, but. Um, uh, uh, but GE had phenomenal results during the during the Jack Welch years, uh, and uh, you know, gave me the chance to go and work in Budapest, uh, which was again, you know, a young kind of wet behind the ears engineer uh, to be sent over there uh, to really have a chance to get a feel for that business and what was going on, uh, and and really impact the direction that that took. I had a I had a a, a sponsor for that. Uh, who was a, a great general manager, one of one of the best leaders that I've you know, worked for. I've worked for a lot of great people. Uh, and uh, so it was just, you know, you got to work with really smart people. 
and I got to appreciate that, that you, you know, that being able to, to work with the right team, to work with really smart people, you can do amazing things. And, and it's really energizing, exciting work. You, you, you're like, you're just excited to go to work every day. So you've got all of this leadership training that you got in the military, all of these experiences yeah. that gave you confidence out in the world. Now you've worked with GE. What comes next for you? Uh, so I, um, uh, I worked for uh, Sony Electronics in Pittsburgh. Uh, my wife was uh, pursuing a degree at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and so there really wasn't an opportunity for me to stay with GE. Uh, and so Sony was setting up a new technology center. And so I went and uh, worked for Sony and helped to set up that technology center. And this was the time when General Electric and a lot of other businesses were getting involved with something called Six Sigma or Process Excellence. Sure. And so I was in on the, the kind of ground floor on that as a, as a, uh, a General Electric black belt. Uh, and Sony started to do that. And so I ended up having a broader role with Sony and this whole thing of process improvement. How do you make, how do you improve businesses so that they're really more focused on what the customer wants? Uh, and then I went on to Johnson & Johnson and did kind of the same thing. Uh, uh, and so I, I was able to kind of ride the wave of that into some, some you know, uh, successively you know, uh, more senior positions. So it worked out really well for me. Perfect. Um, I got a note from Paula here. Oh, the fire's going out. Yeah. Oops. I was going to do it for you. Let's just keep rolling. Okay. It just times out. You just need to press press the start button again. Just need a little more light back there with you guys. And then can we? Are we just probably out of out of propane? Maybe. Oh, that's that, better. Nice. Yeah. You're just going to have to crouch behind that uh, and shake the bottle every once in a while. I think it's sort of just sort of relaxed. Yeah. Or I don't know what you're in focus. I might get your eyes are soft. Your eyes are soft. <laughs> I'm so soft. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, thank you, Paul. <clears throat> okay, we're rolling. So all of this business experience, and not only that, but international business, time in business, you start to come back to the U.S. and you start to travel more. You start to develop a little bit of a love for Land Rovers and, yep. and other things. What, what was your first four-wheel drive vehicle that you really started to explore and travel in? Uh, well, my first four-wheel drive was a 1975 K5 Blazer. You know, uh, just great piece of Detroit uh, garbage at the time. <laughs> I mean, you, you love it, but it rusted as you were looking at it. You know, and I still have a great deal of affection for it. That K5 Blazer, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of vehicles, you know, ref reflect what was in that K5 Blazer. Uh, and so that was the first one that I had. Uh, the, um, the first vehicle that I started to really get in trouble with was a, a Range Rover that I bought. Uh, I bought it, uh, and while I still had uh, while I still had the temporary tags on it, 
managed to get it str uh, stranded in, uh, in uh, Death Valley, up in the Panamints, having destroyed two tires. Uh, and in the process, kind of did, and my wife was with me, and we pretty much did everything that you're not supposed to do. Uh, you know, you're supposed to stay with the vehicle. We didn't do that. You're supposed to not split up. We didn't do that. So we got lost separately and separate from the vehicle. And, uh, but we survived it. You know, and everything you survive, you learn from. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, great, there's a great saying that I love is that, you know, good, good judgment is a result of experience and experience is usually a result of poor judgment. <laughs> and so, so I would say that I have displayed enough poor judgment to have gained a lot of experience. <laughs> Me too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it's all about having the right attitude. Uh, uh, we were, my wife and I were stuck here on the playa uh, several years ago uh, in our Fuso-based expedition vehicle where we buried it up to the frame rails, an 18,500-pound vehicle. And it took a, uh, a mini excavator and a bulldozer to get us out because we'd done such a good job of getting ourselves stuck. <laughs> Thoroughly stuck. Yeah. And, but, you know, but it's, the thing is, when, when you tell stories, nobody wants to hear about the day when everything went great, right? The great stories are when everything went really, really badly, but you somehow struggled and figured out how to make it work. And, uh, and I've always loved those challenges. And, uh, and I'll probably continue to give myself those challenges <laughs> because I just like to try different things. You know, if you're not, if you're not pushing the envelope of what you think you can do, then you're not getting better. You know, and, and, um, and that kind of brings us full circle to why I'm here with you and why we have the nimble evolution behind us. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. And you can see it in our time today driving it. It was you can see a lot of experience and a lot of lessons learned from that. What were some of the lessons that you learned in the design of your Fuso camper? that then you thought about you wanted to do different with the nimble evolution? Well, so, so the Fuso um, was really, really heavy. Yeah, 18,500 pounds on a 14,000-pound chassis uh, that we off-roaded vigorously. Uh, and so uh, we broke the frame uh, in bo both frame rails completely. And it was in this odd position where the, the camper... Uh, and the subframe was actually supporting the camp, the, the, the frame of the vehicle and not the other way around. Uh, and it had a lot of flex. Um, so I ended up doing a complete frame replacement on that vehicle. Uh, and it really sensitized me to, uh, to, to weight and also the base vehicle uh, because weight is so important and choosing the correct, you know, the correct base vehicle that you're going to build your platform on. Uh, I've just seen, uh, especially especially in the uh, truck camper world, uh, you know, suspensions done improperly, vehicles uh, lifted improperly. There's just there's a lot of work that goes out there that just it, it doesn't hold up. Uh, and I believe that uh, a real overland vehicle uh, needs to work on the road because let's face it, in the U.S. Yeah, ninety percent of our miles are going to be on the road, and a lot of it's going to be at seventy-five or eighty-five miles an hour. So you got to be comfortable and feel safe with that. And then, but it's also got to work for where we were today, where we went all over the Black Rock Desert. Yeah, low range. Yeah, differential locks. Yeah. steep climbs, yeah. everything else. And I think part of my love for for Land Rovers, and especially the the solid axle era of Land Rovers, is that. 
there really was that that passion that it had to work in both worlds. You know, it's easy to build a very capable off-road vehicle, easy to build a really great car for cruising down the highway. The challenge is how do you how do you make those two things happen? And for a real overland vehicle, you got to have both. It's got to it's got to work in both worlds. You're right because we have so much distances to cover, and if the vehicle isn't if it can't go fast enough, it takes us that much longer to get where we want to go play. Right. Right. Or if you're gripped the whole time that you're doing it, then the driver's fatigued and you have the opportunity for accidents. And we've we've both seen that. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, and coming here, we probably did maybe 200 200 miles of asphalt, 50 50 miles of uh, of uh, fairly good gravel. Right, which you want to be able to drive at 50 miles an hour, sure. otherwise it's just going to take you forever. Uh, but then, you know, then the road gets twistier and it starts to climb, and then you got to ch- kind of change modes and and to have a vehicle that that really functions, especially carrying a payload. You know, that really that's really get, gets to be a challenge, and I like challenges because you know, I, I really think it's got to work in all of those different environments to to really be to be, to really be the right stuff. And you've kind of developed a little bit of a love for the Ford platform. Yeah. Share with the, the listeners, why have you kind of settled on the F-350 or the Ford F-Series Super Duty as being kind of the, your weapon of choice for travel? So, so I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll build on whatever chassis anybody wants. You know, it's one ton or greater that meets certain specifications. But what we really like, what we really advocate is uh, what Ford is doing with their F-350. Um, I mean, you look at their, the Super Duty, uh, where they have the, tr- the Tremor package. You look at the, uh, the Half-Ton, uh, when they had their Raptor. Uh, and um, uh, you know, they really seem to be taking the off-road, you know, the, the people that off-road these vehicles seriously. And to really be looking at that for the one-ton trucks is amazing. So, so I like that. I like that Ford is being creative. I mean, you look at what they're coming, what's coming down the pipeline for them. You look at the reception that the Bronco has. Uh, you look at this magnificent 7.3 liter motor that they have, uh, which uh, is is meant to be a long life motor. It's a fleet motor that construction companies, that municipalities, that utilities are going to use. It's a old school pushrod V8, normally aspirated, just a fun motor. Yeah, tons of torque. It has almost 500 foot-pounds of torque. And, yeah, a couple of years ago, you had to buy diesel to get that. Uh, so, torquey, fun to drive. Uh, none of the emissions concerns with a diesel. Um, you know, I, I have a couple of, of, of old-school diesels myself. You know, no, no def, no particulate filters, and, and, I, and I love them. All right? Uh, we've talked about my van that, sure. that I had. Yeah, things awesome. Fantastic. Um, uh, but if I were looking at a new vehicle, I, I wouldn't buy a diesel. It's just, it, it's too much hassle. I've heard too many stories from people who you know, had their diesel go into limp mode. They had to get it towed to a dealer. It took them five days to look at it. And it ended up being a blown fuse or a little 50 cent sensor. But it just, it's absolutely immobilizes you. A little thing just immobilizes you. And, and I don't want that if I'm, if I'm out in the back country. Uh, yeah, very true. And also, it, the challenge internationally yeah. is finding ultra-low sulfur, sulfur diesel. And that's another reason why so many more 
international overland travelers are picking gasoline engines. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about a Ranger that I've been driving for a little while now. It's got plenty of power yeah. and torque, and it gets well into the 20s miles per gallon, yeah. even lightly modified. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that they're getting so much more power out of small engines. Yeah. Yeah. They're, it, that's not the case of the 7.3, but in a lot of these motors, they're turbocharging them. Yeah. And then they're putting, they're bolting on a 10-speed transmission. And that was what I noticed most about driving the 7.3 is with that 500 foot-pounds of torque, mm-hmm. I'm going from first to second all the way up to 10th gear. And it's keeping me in that power band, in that sweet spot of the torque range and it was very evident driving it that this is not the you know the five seven it's not the five three it's not the the engines the 302s for example the 350s that came before it Uh, these are definitely motors that have evolved yeah yeah i you know i just i think the vehicle should be fun to drive and and i ask you is that f-350 with the 7.3 fun to drive it's pretty fun well especially when we hit um really fast speeds on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it's just, it's fun, right? And did you miss the diesel? No, I didn't. Nah. And especially one of the things that I did notice now at very low speeds, uh, off highway, when you're in technical terrain, a diesel does have that very reassuring torque to yeah. it, yeah. but this isn't far behind it. Again, at 500 foot pounds of torque, it would be similar to one of the earlier 7.3 diesels right, uh, right. for actual torque output. So they've just, they've come so far. And the fact that you have that flexibility of a much broader RPM range, yeah. um, the the vehicle is able to be much more responsive yeah. in my mind. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to drive. It, right? it, to- it, really- it, it, <laughs> it totally is. So what were some of the other things that you learned from the Range Rovers. Now, you had P-38 Range Rovers. Yeah, yeah, a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, I, you joke about it, but it's, it's the last the last solid axle Range Rover. It's the last of its last of its kind. Uh, and uh, and kind of just a, you know, a unsung hero. Yeah, I've really loved mine. Uh, the, you know, it had a, some truly innovative technologies on it for the time. You know, first H-gate shifter instead of having to have a separate shifter for the transfer case. Uh, the, uh, the traction control system, an actual uh, the hydraulic traction control system instead of just a, an air power. It's a really, really strong. Um, you know, they did, there was a lot of innovation in that platform. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have one that's 20 years old and I still... You know, drive it on a regular basis, basis four-wheel it on a regular basis. I've got a, you know, 20-year-old Maggiolina rooftop tent on it, uh, which performs well. And if I'm going to Moab, that's what I'm taking because I'm, I'm driving the trails in comfort. I'm camping in comfort, but it can go everywhere I want to go. And one of the other vehicles that you have that you've talked about and have a lot of love for, we both have some love for mm-hmm. the Suzuki's. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about yeah. your Samurai. Uh, I mean, for a for a day tripper, right? Yeah. Just to go out and play, it's hard to beat the Samurai. Yeah, I mean it's a you know two thousand pound vehicle with a one point three liter engine, uh, but it just putt putts along, you know. And I'm used to driving these big heavy vehicles, and so you know I can drive through things where I would sink to the to the axles if not the frame immediately, and I can just kind of bounce along on top with the Samurai. The Samurai is a great, great platform, uh, and 
where I live, uh, I, I'm surrounded by BLM land, and there's lots and lots of ATV trails, side-by-side trails, and my samurai is smaller than most side-by-sides. And so yeah, I can get big. Right. And I got a license plate on it, so I can actually drive it to the trail legally. And with all of this, all of these different vehicles that you've had yeah. and these building large expedition campers and now designing, helping to design improvements around the nimble vehicle, working with your team on that um, and launching now this prototype. If someone is looking to build their a camper or buy a camper, mm-hmm. in your mind, what do you feel are some of the most critical components or, or decision sets around purchasing or building their own camper? Right. Well, I mean, so first thing is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a DIY guy at heart. I love making stuff. And so, uh, you know, I always have a lot of time for people who are saying they're going to, they want to build their own camper. Cause I think that's great. I mean, there's, if, if it's something that you really want to do, then you should do it. Right. Uh, I just don't believe that necessarily it'll save you time or money to do it. Uh, but if it's what you want to do, it's what well, your, your passion around do it. Uh, we, um, uh, we're a Wabasto authorized reseller. Uh, and so we're factory trained. We know how to make the Wabastos work. Uh, we get a lot of people showing up saying, hey, you know, I got my heater installed. I bought it from some kind of gray marketplace uh, because Wabasto won't sell you a heater without an installation. Uh, and so it's hard to get, for them to get support. But we'll say, you know, what, we'll, we charge you our minimum diagnostic fee. We'll take a look at it, see if we can't get you going. And for Probably 90% of the people where you get them out in under an hour. Yeah. You know? So, so, you know, I think that doing it yourself is good, but also knowing when to call for help is good. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and I think a lot of professional builders, you know, not just me, but others, everybody has a lot of time for somebody that's trying to do it themselves because we've all kind of been there. Uh, we just have a lot of cycles of learning. And I've figured out how to do things. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, building your own is awesome. If you have the garage for it, if you have the skills, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's all, it, it, but, it, but the process of building it needs to be fun for you. Yeah, yeah. I would if, agree. If, if you just try, if the end result is to just get an expedition vehicle, buy an expedition vehicle. Instead of working to build it, work overtime or work a second job and take that money and use it to buy it, and you'll be ahead of the game. But, if you really like making stuff, if you like figuring stuff out, you know, build your own. You'll have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say would be like the three most important performance attributes of an expedition camper? Uh, so uh, I think it's, uh, uh, of course, comfort uh, and then capability and security. Right, so you want you want a vehicle that you're going to be able to to you know to be comfortable in, uh, and depending on who you are and where you are in your life, your definition of comfort is going to be different, right? Uh, I, I, you know, uh, 20 years ago, my definition of comfort was these thermo rests are really cool things, right? Uh, and then then I moved on to well, you know, this roof tent is really cool, sure, right? Uh, but then you get, then you say, you know what? It's kind of nice to not be forced to camp outside the camper if the weather's really bad. Like tonight is great, right? But if it were raining, it'd really be nice to where we could do this inside the camper and have this yeah. chat, right? So being have being able to have that option, being able to have 
for me being able to have a bed that isn't also my dining room table. All right. So for my wife and I, that's one of the things that we figured out that, you know, to, you know, uh, certainly having a bed that converts into a table is very space efficient. But uh, when you're on the road for months at a time, it's just a hassle. You know, and you don't want you just you don't you don't want to do it. Uh, and it's nice to have some separate areas that you can be in. So having that, having a shower, um, you know, being able to cook food, being able to 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 keep food cold, things like that. Um, uh, you know, not not things that are exclusive to to what we do, but to me, that's that's a, a lot of that's a lot of the Those package. Are important factors. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I noticed driving the vehicle today was how well it did off highway. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things that you think are critical around full drive performance for these big heavy campers? Um, and so I've been um, I've been doing this for a long time with a lot of different ways, uh, and uh, the most important thing is to really set up the suspension correctly. You know, do the shocks, do the springs, and do it right. Um, I see a lot of people when they build a vehicle, or even you know, somebody has a truck camper that they're putting on and it's heavy, and what do they do? They add airbags, they add helper bags, and that's just that's just uh, you know, kind of covering up a problem. It doesn't solve the problem. The real problem. Yeah, you know, the, the the real problem is that your suspension isn't right. Yeah, and so when we when we do a suspension, uh, we have a, a, a couple of great partners. Uh, we have uh, uh, Icon that we use their their they do a really slick coilover conversion that we do it on the front. We do their remote reservoir shocks all around. Uh, for the rear, uh, which is leaf sprung, what we do is we actually when we have the flatbed built. We have 4,000 pounds of concrete that we put on the flatbed, and we take it down to a partner uh, of ours in downtown Sacramento, Sacramento Spring, that uh, we call the Leaf Spring Whisperers, right? They've been doing Leaf Springs. I think the two, there's two brothers, and between them, they've been doing it for like 60 years. And so uh, they are just the masters at setting up Leaf Springs uh, for us local dust. There's some other great companies. I have Deaver Springs on my Fuso. Got nothing bad to say about Deaver. In fact, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about Deaver. Uh, but we have Sacramento Spring Local to us, and they're fantastic as well. Uh, and so I think it's really finding somebody that instead of patching the suspension with airbags or something to try and compensate for the deficiencies in it, really just take the time to set it up right. And, you know, it's it takes some time, but it, when you look at the total budget for the project, Setting up the suspension is not a, it's not a big part of it, but it's so important. I would agree. In fact, I think that suspension, despite the use case scenario, is almost always the time that's best spent in my mind. Okay. All right. Yep. No problem. So both cameras quit at 30 minutes, which was like one and a half questions ago. Okay. But we got audio. <laughs> Started rolling again. There's a little mess. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. But is yours okay? It's always. Do you want to cut and start? New sound and stuff? Yeah, we've got just a couple questions left, so. Okay, there it's got my screen back. Okay, yeah, his screen went black. Yeah, it's okay. I'm so getting nervous. What's it? 
Yeah, okay, we'll just keep. Yeah, it. Okay. perfect. Thank Sorry. you. No, it's all good. Yeah, they have that thirty-minute shut off. No problem. So you guys are talking about if you want to pick it up at the end. It was the question before you were talking about the comfort of the bed. Okay. Yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll. Um, such a good one. Well, it's on the audio. No, that's fine. It happens. You rolling? So I'll just ask that question again. Okay. So when we think about preparing expedition campers, like the Nimble or something that someone has made themselves or even a competitive brand, I've certainly got things in my mind that I see as very important, like performance and driver fatigue and that the chassis is rated for the load. Those are things that I immediately look towards. Um, and I think that a lot of companies do it right. And then there are a few that don't do it right. Uh, but in your mind, what are the, what are the most important attributes when you look to design an expedition camper? Uh, so, so we look at it in terms of comfort and capability, right? So the, the comfort is the habitat, uh, and also the, uh, you know, the, 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 the driving position, you know, as, as you mentioned, because the distances are huge in America, right? So you have a lot of highway miles. And so having a really well-appointed cabin is, you know, is, is nice. And it did just, you know, you have less driver fatigue. Uh, in fact, uh, these new vehicles, they'll even tell you if they think you're fatigued. Sure. They'll tell, the, the, this F-350 will literally tell you it's time to stop and have a cup of coffee because they're watching you as you drive down the lane and they see as you start to wander. Uh, and so uh, you know, one of the things that we put a lot of effort into is maintaining all of those comfort, convenience, safety features that these vehicles have. Uh, it's why we have uh, this bumper built by Descent Off-Road Force instead of a huge brush bar thing uh, because we wanted to maintain the stock, the stock approach angle we wanted to maintain the stock, the stock uh, uh, sensors, both the vehicle position sensors, the, the forward view camera, the active cruise control, because uh, those are all great amenities you know, that I like, uh, and you shouldn't have to give those up. Uh, so, so that, and then also the comfort of the, of the cabin. Uh, for me, uh, having a separate bed, a, a real bed, you know, we have a you know, memory phone mattress in there that's really nice and comfortable. As you can say, right? Yeah, for sure. I slept in it last night. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, but also having it separate from the 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 the, the kind of the day use area, uh, you know, the the uh, the dinette with seating and things like that, uh, where you have a little, little map table, or you can actually plug in your GPS and, uh, and and plan your next day or review what you did the the day before. Having a having a full you know uh, having a full shower. Uh, and enough water to do that. You know, we have seventy-five gallon water tank, uh, uh, and, and making it simple, right? So, uh, one of the changes that we've been able to make is that uh, you don't have to you don't have to settle for diesel appliances if you have a gasoline vehicle. So we match the appliances to the vehicle, and we run it directly from the vehicle fuel tank. So. You want to buy the uh, the F three fifty with the seven point three, which we really like. Then your appliances are going to be gas. If you want to buy 
uh, a Ram with uh, a, a Cummins diesel in it, uh, then you're going to have diesel appliances. You're not going to have to worry about it. It's going to be the same controls. It's going to work, uh, but it's going to be kind of worry-free. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's I think that's important. And using using name brand components, uh, you know, not using uh, we. we you know, we really make an effort to make sure everything that we use is of top quality by brands that you'll recognize with warranties that you'll like. Uh, I mean, the the lithium ion battery packs we come that that we're putting in now come with ten year warranties on them. Yeah, it's amazing. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, and it's and it's a we try to buy local, and that's a local company for us. Battleborn does it. They're they're an hour away from our shop. Yeah, one of the things I noticed was that the vehicle has a lot of emphasis on performance, particularly off-highway. The on-road is a given, and it yeah. works It works as you would expect it to. But what, what I was really surprised by was the, the off-road performance. And it really, for me, it came down to the suspension setup. So what are some, some of the things that you see as being critical around suspension setup? Um, the, well, having good partners... Right, because we're not we're not a suspension house. We're we're an assembly, you know, spec it and assemble it, uh, and to finding the right people and making the right choices. Because, really, that's what our customers are relying on us for our expertise. You know, uh, and so uh, we worked with Icon. You know, Icon has a really nice coilover uh, front suspension uh, that we really like, uh, and we use their shocks all around. We use their we use their wheels. Uh, and then uh, rear suspension is the trickier part uh, because there's no kind of off-the-shelf leaf spring package that you can put on. Uh, so we're uh, lucky that Sacramento uh, still has a large agricultural community. And there's a company called Sacramento Spring that does a lot of agricultural spring repair in addition to custom springs for folks like us. Uh, and they've been doing it uh, for 60 years plus. And so these guys really know what they're doing. What we do is we uh, we build our flatbed. We put four thousand pounds of concrete on it, and we take them and we take the truck down to Sacramento Spring and say, "Right, set up these springs to work for this load." And they do it, and they do amazing work. Uh, and Sacramento Spring, they're just they're just local to us, and we really like them. But there's a couple of others around the country. Uh, Deaver comes to mind. I've used Deaver Springs on my Fuso. They do great work. I've never heard anybody say anything bad about Deaver. Uh, and there's a couple of others, but it's it's almost kind of a dying art because springs are just these throwaway things now. So to find a, a, a company that can actually reforge or forge springs is tough. Uh, but to get it done right, that's that's what you got to do. You can't just put airbags on. It just doesn't work. Yeah, Don't it, do, does, it doesn't hold up. Yeah, it doesn't hold up at all. Yeah. Well, those that's all really good advice. There's a couple questions that I like to ask during these interviews. Do you have a couple books, books that have been influential in your life, either in business or as a traveler? Is Are there any books that come to mind that are sitting on your, or that maybe even give away as gifts? Uh, I mean, it's hard to answer because it seems like I get so much of my content bite-sized on the internet sure. these days. Uh you know the um, uh, some of the best training and guides that I've had, and this is actually more of a DVD series. But the work that Bill Burke has done, uh, I've done over the years, 
months and months of training with Bill Burke. And so, you know, for me, it's not, it's, it's more experiential than just reading a book, but it's having somebody that can actually teach you. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I'm a big fan of Bill. There's other great trainers out there, but it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, uh, when people say, well, I know how to drive off-road. Nobody can teach me something. That's kind of the same. Well, you know, suppose I was able to set you up with uh, a Formula One driver for a week. Do you think you would learn something from that person? Or do you think that your automotive skills are so good that you couldn't learn something from a Formula One driver? Some of these trainers out here, these four-wheel drive trainers are so good that they'll, that that they're just at such a different level and you can, you know, in, in the course of a day or a week, you can just soak up some information from them, become a, a much better, more confident driver, able to take on more obstacles and basically just enjoy yourself. Yeah. It makes so much sense. You, we invest so much in the vehicle yeah. and these trips are sometimes the trip of a lifetime yeah. and for it to be cut short because of a lack of driver skill or a lack of awareness of the right technique. Um, I think that's money well spent. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, w- I would agree. And if someone is just getting into into overland travel, or they're or they're just thinking about their first trip, their mm-hmm. first big trip, what would the what would be the first piece of advice that you would give someone who wants to go travel? Uh, uh, stay local <laughs> at first, right? It's you know, put training wheels on and. Even though you're planning to go across the country or something like that, or go to, you're going up to the Arctic Ocean, or you know going south down into Mexico and points further down in Guatemala, whatever. Uh, you know, start local. Put on. You start with training wheels. Go and camp at the at the closest campground you can find. Sure. You know, because that's going to be enough of an experience for you that first time out. Uh, you know, and then and then ease into it. You know, especially if you have. Uh, partners that are maybe a little unwilling, you know, or whatever, you start, you take baby steps because it's going to be enough. You know, you're going to find out that you forgot stuff. First time out, you're going to find out you forgot something ridiculous, you know, that would completely sink the whole event. So, but if you're in town, you know where the Walmart is or the Target or the REI, and you can go and solve that problem. Yeah. So, so ease into it. You know, there's, there's going to be great adventures ahead, but yeah, you know, get get ready for it first. Yeah, that step by step. That's great. That's great advice because even on this trip, I'm I'm always I'm always learning, and I'm so grateful for the <coughs> for the fact that every time I travel, I take away some realization of of something that I could have brought that was different, or something that I could have left yeah. at home, or something that I could have done different as a traveler. You're right. All, every single, even the local trips, you learn so much yeah, from it. It's either the, uh, wow, that worked really well. I'm going to have to remember that. Or the, wow, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> right? Yeah, I've had a lot of those don't do that again moments for sure. John, thank you so much for the time. And thank you for showing me Northern Nevada yeah. and the the Black Rock Desert. And I mean, what was the trail that we did today? We were up in the mountains. It was the Calico Mountains that we went up to. Into. Wow, that was uh, amazing. Not even one of the popular trails, uh, but, but really like neat. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, there's, uh, I think I told you, I love the the lesser known trails, the things where you just get out and see what you can find versus to say, oh, we have this obstacle and this feature when you've got a guide. It's just going out and exploring. 
Yeah, I agree. And we did that today, and that was really fun. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thanks for being All on right. the show. I appreciate it, John. And we will talk to you next time.